Uh, why don't you grab a Bible and you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to just keep uh, plugging away at this great book of the Bible. Um, some of you may have seen in you know, more recent years, uh, it's a lot on social media, but there's this whole kind of trend about deconversion or um, deconstruction or some, uh, there's you know, hashtags and things like that on Facebook and uh, TikTok or whatever. Uh, you know, some people call themselves, well, I'm an ex-evangelical. I'm not an evangelical anymore. I'm not a Christian. I deconstructed. I deconverted. And it's very, very, you know, popular and trendy now online. But it's actually not a new thing. Um, Some of you might know the name Charles Templeton, but years ago, he, uh, people would call him, well, he's the Canadian Billy Graham. So he was an evangelist, and he actually did a few uh, big stadium events with Billy Graham, and he was uh, very good, and and he would go around the world and preach the gospel and uh, encourage and and plead with people to repent and turn to Jesus. But later on in his life, and many of you know this story, uh, he began to struggle with doubt. He questioned the reliability of the Bible, uh, and, and he went from being a believer to an agnostic, maybe God exists, I don't know, to then he just said, no, God doesn't exist, the Bible's not true, there is no God. And before he died, he wrote his biography, and the name of his biography, it's titled, Farewell to God. So like 50 years ago, there was already people who were deconstructing and throwing away their faith that they had professed. Um, More recently in 2018, some of you know the name Joshua Harris, and he was a a very popular Christian. He wrote a best-selling book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and if you grew up as a teen in the 90s, guaranteed you read that book uh, in your youth group. Um, But very famously, five years ago, he, uh, he said, you know what, I don't think I believe in Jesus anymore. Uh, He says, I actually withdraw everything that I wrote about in that book. Uh, He divorced his wife, and now he's living as an atheist. God doesn't exist. Jesus isn't real. The Bible's not true. Um, John Piper's own son is very famous on TikTok because he has deconstructed his faith, and he says, Christianity is a joke, and it's racist, and it's misogynistic, and it's homophobic, and I'm not a Christian anymore. Uh, Rhett and Link, which if you're over the age of 40, you have no idea who those people are, but very famous YouTubers who came out recently and said, you know what, Christianity's not true, Jesus isn't true, God doesn't exist, we're not Christians anymore. And I mean, we could spend lots of time this morning talking about people who have not finished the race, who haven't made it to the end. My, My own uncle is one of those people who for years said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, and then about a decade ago said, nah, the New Testament's made up, Jesus is not real, and I don't believe in that anymore. Um, Last week, if you were here, uh, what Paul did in the passage that we studied is he talked about uh, removing barriers for people to come to to Jesus. And we talked about, well, what what does it require to become a Christian? Well, really, all the Bible talks about is faith and repentance, It requires that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that you repent and turn your life and now you are a follower of Jesus. But what I didn't want to uh, emphasize is what a lot of people call just easy believism. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. Just say the prayer and check the box and you're in. 
This morning, the question is, well, what happens after the cross, right? We talked about, oh, how do we bring people to the cross and, yes, remove barriers and, no, your rips in your jeans don't matter. Come to church and hear about Jesus. But what happens on the other side of the cross? So really, the question I'm asking this morning is, how do you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you make it to the end? How do you finish well? How do you persevere? And how do you not become like so many of these ex-evangelicals who go, I give up? How do you make it to the end? And I think our passage this morning answers that question. So I have four points and then three applications. So not seven points, that's too many, but I have four and then three, okay? Uh, And we have like half an hour to do it. So uh, four points that Paul makes and then just really quickly at the end, well, how does that apply to us? So here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24, Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Um, We'll continue reading, but the first point of, you know, how do we actually make it and finish and end and persevere? Well, number one is following Jesus is a life of discipline. And Paul uses this athletic illustration. He's like, don't you know when when runners get ready uh, to race, only one gets the prize. So run so that you'll receive the prize. And and then he says, athletes, they train and they show self-control and they do it for a perishable wreath, something that doesn't last. But Christian, you're doing it for an everlasting wreath. Um, Corinth was home to what was called the Isthmian Games, and they took place every two years. So remember, Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months, so odds are he maybe saw one of the Isthmian Games. And they were second only to the Olympics, massive athletic games every two years, and they would have um, competitions in running and wrestling and javelin and on and on and on. And any athlete who wanted to compete in the Isthmian Games, they had to commit and prove that they had trained for 10 months leading up, 10 months of training. And at the Olympics and at uh, uh, another games called the Pythian Games, you won a, a laurel wreath. That was the prize, right, that they would put on. You've probably seen the, the old pictures of the, 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 leaf, uh, the leafy crown that they wore. And in the Isthmian Games, it wasn't a laurel wreath, it was a celery wreath. But you're like, what am I competing for? Celery's the worst. <laughs> but it was a celery, a, a wreath made out of, of celery plants. And so what Paul is getting at is, look at all these guys, they, they train for 10 months, they fight and they race, and what are they, what are they competing for? Something that in maybe a couple weeks at the most is just going to wither and die. They're, they're putting all of that effort in for something that doesn't last. And then he says, Christians... You are running for a, a, a prize that will never perish. 2 Timothy 4 talks about a crown of righteousness. That's what you're competing for. And so he's, he's using this example of, of training. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, some, sometimes online, uh, different pro athletes, um, they'll make a video or they'll, or they'll write an article, article about their daily routine. 
And so, you know, this, just this week I just looked up, you know, what is, you know, LeBron James, what does he do to train? And it, it's like insanity. It's like I eat six meals a day with eight chicken breasts per meal, and then I drink raw eggs, and then I work out nine times a day, and blah, 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 and then I go to bed at, at seven at night because I'm up at 3 a.m. to keep pumping on, and it's just insane, and when I watch and read those things, I'm like, thank God I'm not a pro athlete. Like, have you tried donuts and pastries? They're so good, but you read, and you go, these people like Paul, like this is 2,000 years ago, and Paul's like, don't you know athletes train and they have self-control, and it's no different now. If you want to be a pro athlete and if you want to win, you have to train. You have to have self-control. You have to say no to things, and you have to put your body through those kind of exercises. So Paul's making a comparison here. He's saying, don't you know they do that? And what are they racing for? Nothing. You, you are racing for eternal life. So is your life of following Jesus a life of discipline? Paul continues in verse 26, using himself as an example. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul says, I'm not, I'm not just running around aimlessly. Like, can you imagine if, if an athlete showed up at the, Olymp- at the Olympics to, to swim, and they started, and Michael Phelps, of course, is just like, out of the gate, and there's just a guy who's like, la, 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 going in between the aisles and splashing, and it just, what, we'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you there? Why are you just swimming doggy paddle while everyone else is racing? Paul says, I'm not just running around with no point. I'm not just beating the air because there's, there's nothing else to do. He says, I discipline my body. Run as if your life depended on it. Literally, the Greek, uh, discipline my body, it means to hit under the eye. Like Paul says, I'm giving myself black eyes here. Now, it's not what some have taken that and said, well, it's self-flagellation. We literally physically beat ourselves. No, of course not. But Paul's talking about extreme discipline. I discipline myself so that I can run my spiritual race and make it to the end. He doesn't want to be disqualified. So this is a, a terrifying point. Not everyone who starts the race is going to finish it. Uh, not everyone is going to endure to the end. So to think, this first point, do you treat your walk with Jesus this way? Is your walk with Jesus a life of discipline, spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading your Bible, communing with other Christians? Do you take it that seriously? And, and I think by and large, myself included, most of us, most of the time, don't take it that seriously. We go, a, a life of discipline and self-control and saying no to things and taking my, up my cross, ugh. I thought God was just supposed to make my life just like rainbows and sunshine all the time. Um, recently, they did a, a survey about uh, Bible reading habits with uh, Christian adults. And they found that 50% of adults who would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, read their Bible twice a year. Half of adults who say, I am a follower of Jesus, crack their Bibles open twice a year. I think it was something like 7 or 8% of adults say, I read my Bible every day. 
and we go, well, Paul seems to say that we actually have to discipline ourselves, that we actually have to have self-control and train and exercise spiritually so that we can make it to the end. Um, I remember doing young adult ministry uh, years ago, and we were having a Bible study about this very thing, about, you know, well, what, how, do you, how do you spend time with Jesus? How do you, how do you study his word? And, and one, a young adult girl said, well, I, I only read my Bible when I really feel like it. Because I, I never want to make it feel like it's a chore for me. So I only crack open my Bible when I'm, like, when I'm really feeling it. And I'm like, okay, I get that that sounds super spiritual, but that is, that is literally spiritual suicide. Because you know what? There's lots of days when I get up in the morning and I'm like, I really don't feel like reading this. But what do athletes do? It doesn't matter what you feel like. Do it. Train. And I know there's been seasons, and I know you've had this too, where it just feels like dry and you're like, am I getting anything out of this? But I would urge you, read it because it's doing something to your soul. It is, regardless if you feel like it or not. But you, your life of following Jesus, if you're going to make it, it's a life of discipline. It's training. It's setting aside things. It's not doing things so that you can focus on other things. Paul is saying you, you must train if you're going to finish the race. Point number two, you can do all the things and still not finish the race. So chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, he begins to use this example of Israel. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Um, so Paul, what he's doing is he's paralleling Israel and the church, and he's saying, look, they, look at this example. He's saying, I Israel, they all were under the cloud, meaning if you remember the Old Testament, God, uh, his presence was in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and he led them right through the desert. They were all there. They all passed through the, the, the sea. They were baptized into Moses. So Paul's saying that the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, going you know, into the water and coming up, it's kind of a parallel of baptism. You go into the water and you come up. And he says, and all the Israelites did it. They all passed through the sea, baptized into Moses. He says they all ate spiritual food and spiritual drink. He's talking about the manna from heaven and the water that God provided for them. And when he says spiritual, he just means that um, God provided them supernaturally. But what is, he, what is he getting at? He's saying, well, we, we eat food and drink in the church, communion. We have bread and we have juice or wine or whatever it is. And he says, well, that's kind of what they did. They, they did communion in the desert. He says there's a parallel here. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. If you remember the story when Moses strikes the rock and then water pours out, there was this Jewish... Um, teaching that that rock literally physically followed the, the, the Israelites around for the 40 years in the desert. Because scholars went, well, where did they get water? So maybe that, that rock literally just kind of like hovered and followed them. But Paul says, no, the rock is Jesus. He provided for them in the desert. They experienced all of these blessings 
from God. Jesus, his presence was with them. They went through baptism, so to speak. They had food and drink and provision. And look at what it says in chapter 5. You would think that that the verse would say, and all the Israelites loved God and went into the promised land. But Paul says, actually, nevertheless, with most of them, God wasn't pleased and they died in the desert. And that's actually an understatement. Do you know how many people of that generation that was saved from Egypt made it into the promised land? Two people, Joshua and Caleb. So big understatement that God was not pleased with most of them, like all of them. And so you go, well, how on earth does that happen? They were doing all the right things, weren't they? Put it in our day and age. How does that happen? So-and-so was baptized. They came to church. They took communion. They experienced all the blessings of God, and they still didn't make it. This is a very sober warning of what can happen. Um, You can go through all the motions. You can experience the blessings of God. You can get baptized. You can take communion, and you can actually do all those things and still not have saving faith. You can be fooling yourself. Because the Israelites did it. They experienced the blessings and benefits of God. They experienced the presence of Christ. And yet if you read the Old Testament, their hearts were so hard that I I actually think that they actually didn't have faith. Even though they were going through all the motions. It's possible for you to do all the things, all the right things and check all the boxes and still actually not finish your race. So then the question is, well, how? How on earth does stuff like that happen? And so this leads to point number three. It's actually possible for you to shipwreck yourself. And what Paul does in this next section is he gives four examples from Israel's history as a warning to us. Uh, I'm growing up, and I actually was texting my dad this week about this. I remember my dad and my uncle Steve uh, would often share these Make, make-believe stories that they would make up um, that always had a moral at the end. And I remember texting my dad this week saying, what was the character's name? He said, it was Bad Bobby. And he would tell <laughs> Bad Bobby stories about this kid, you know, who's smoking cigarettes in the woods or whatever it was. And the moral of the story was, that's why you don't smoke cigarettes. And that's why you don't drink beer, whatever it was, right? And uh, this is a quote from my dad. He said, I can't remember with Bad Bobby whether he would repent in the story or whether he stayed on his road to hell. And it was like, wow, dad, I was like six years old. But what was the point of that? My dad and my uncle Steve told these stories because it was a way to teach lessons, right? And I know you'd probably do that too. Or you'll read a book and at the end it's like, and so the main character learned that it's always good to tell the truth. Or whatever it is, right? But we do that with our children, don't we? We tell stories and the point of the story is not simply to just entertain them, but oftentimes it's to, uh, to teach them a lesson. My dad always did this with movies as well, which was so annoying. We would watch a movie and then he would stop it at the end. So what did we learn? I'm like, I don't know, dad. It's Aladdin. Don't rub the genie's lamp. I don't know what, but he would do that, right? Because he wanted to take every opportunity. This is kind of what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, let's look back at these stories that actually happened, but what do we actually learn from these stories? So four examples in four verses. Verse six, he says this, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So these stories in the Old Testament, they're for our benefit. Verse seven, 
Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what story is that? Um, In Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, um, we read about the, the people building or making this golden calf. So if you remember, the Israelites have been saved from Egypt. God performed 10 unbelievably miraculous plagues to show his power. He leads the Israelites out. Moses at the front, the Red Sea parts. They walk on dry land. The uh, Pharaoh and his armies are destroyed by the water. They come to Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up on the, the mountain to receive the law of God. And the people, like, immediately tell Aaron, build us an idol so that we can worship it. And I mean, we can be hard on the Israelites because I'm like, do you not just It, like, happened days ago where God saved you, but we're the same. And they say, build us an idol, and so Aaron gets all of their jewelry, and then he makes this golden calf, and we're told that the people began to worship this golden calf, and they would point to the calf and go, look, this is the God that saved us from Egypt. And when it says that... um, they, they ate and drank, and then they rose up to play. We're not talking like horseshoes. We're not talking pickleball. It's notes of sexual immorality. They were committing just depraved things in, in the worship of this golden calf. And so Paul says, remember that story. Don't do what they did. Don't be idolaters. Now, some of us, we can look at that and go, well, Idolatry seems like it's like an, an Old Testament thing. I am not tempted to build a, an idol in my garage and bow down and, and worship it. And so we might go, well, I, I don't commit idolatry. And I have to tell you that you do. I, an idol is anything that you put in the place of God. And John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Your heart just churns out idols over and over and over. Do you want to know why? Because human beings, we have to worship something. People who are like, oh, I don't worship anything. It's not true. Human beings, we are designed to worship something. But idolatry is when you take worship that belongs to God alone, and then you begin to worship other things, whether it be money or your kids or sex or beauty or materialism or whatever it is. So we all have idols, things that we put in the place of God. So Paul's words, don't be idolaters, is so relevant for us. Don't worship other things. Don't put things that are maybe important in the place of supreme importance. A few good questions to ask where if you want to discover, well, what, what maybe are my idols? Number one, where do you spend your money? It's a really good indicator of what your idol is. How do you spend your money? What do you, what do you uh, get upset about and defend anytime someone questions you about it? Hey, I think you, maybe ha- I think you have a maybe an unhealthy view of your kids that you're placing them on this. No, I don't. Things that you violently defend often are idols in your life. What do you daydream about? Man, if I only had more money, then I could go on that cruise, and then I could buy that better truck. And da, da, da. It's usually an indicator of what your idols are. Idolatry is spiritual suicide. It will shipwreck your faith. It has the potential to so shipwreck your faith that you won't finish the race. So Paul says, learn from Israel. Don't commit idolatry. Second example, 
verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. So what story is that? Um, In Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, it talks about the Israelites traveling through the desert and they come to a place called Shittim. And we're told that there they began to worship Baal and they committed sexual immorality with the women of Moab. And so uh, what God did is he sent a plague to punish them for this just gross depravity that you know, married Israelite men were going and sleeping around with all of these Moabite women and they were committing sexual immorality. Sexual immorality has the potential to shipwreck your faith. Paul says, don't, don't indulge in that. Don't do what the Israelites did. Flee from those things. But again, I, I think if we're just honest, many Christians I know, we just kind of flirt with it a little bit. I mean, we play around with it. We, we see, well, where's the line so that I can get as close as possible to the line without sinning? Um, as a pastor, I'll tell you, man, premarital sex, adultery, pornography are just ravaging the church. And it has the potential to shipwreck your faith. The amount of people that I talk to, you know, when, I, when we do premarital counseling, it's probably 50 to 60% of Christian couples who are like, yeah, we're sleeping together before we're married. The amount of people that are addicted to pornography, the amount of people that have committed adultery on their spouses, and it's just, we just kind of treat it lightly, and Paul seems to be saying, no, don't indulge in those things. It will shipwreck you. Third example. Verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So this story comes from Numbers 21, uh, starting in verse 5, and what happened is that the people began to hate the provision of God. They said, ah, this manna is so bland, I hate it. We had meat back in Egypt, didn't we? And it was way better there. And and basically, uh, what happened is that God sent snakes to come and bite them, and people were dying. And then God told Moses, because God, he doesn't have to be, but he is so merciful. In the midst of his judgment, he says, you know what? Put a bronze snake on a pole, and Moses, you hold it up, and anyone that looks at the the bronze snake, I'll, I'll save them. They won't die from their snake bites. And it's interesting that Paul says that sin that the Israelites were doing was putting Christ to the test. It's almost like they were saying, well, if, if, we, if we reject God's food and provision, well, what's, what's he going to do about it? What's his reaction going to be? Right? So Paul says, don't put Christ to the test. Don't live like that where you're just going, well, I'm going to disobey and I'm going to see what I can get away with. Is God really going to punish me? Will bad things actually happen if I, if I disobey and follow my flesh? Paul says, no, don't, don't live like that. Why? It's going to shipwreck your faith. Last example, verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, Paul could be referencing, like, the entire Old Testament, <laughs> But there's Numbers 11, there's Numbers 14, there's Numbers 16. There's so many examples where the people of Israel just grumbled against God. Again about food, ugh, manna again. Again about the leadership, why do Moses and Aaron get to be leaders? We could be leaders too. And they just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. Um, the word which I love in Greek is gonguzo. And it literally means that someone's just muttering under their breath. Manna. 
I have to beat man again. Blah, blah, blah. That's, that's just grumbling. Just You're so discontent that you're muttering under your breath. And Paul says, learn from their mistakes. Don't be people who grumble and mutter under your breath. Why? Because it actually has a very real potential of shipwrecking your faith. If you're someone that just grumbles against God, it's actually a lack of trust in the sovereignty and providence of God. When you grumble and you go, why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this? And listen, we are like this. We are grumblers and complainers. We go, thanks God for providing me a car, but I wish it was this car instead. I have to drive a Ford. I wish I could drive a Chevy or whatever, right? And we just grumble about things. There's food in my cupboards, but I wish I could afford better food. And we just grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble. Do you know what the antidote to grumbling is? It's actually being thankful. <laughs> like literally a few days ago, it was one of the rainy gray mornings and I'm having breakfast with my two daughters and I said something along the lines of, man, it's such, it's such a great day today. And my daughter said, why is today great? It's miserable outside. Muttering under my breath, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's rainy and it's cloudy and I don't like it. And I said, do you know why it's a good day? I'm so bad with my kids. It's a good day because you woke up alive. You're eating breakfast. You are, I didn't yell because my, my wife was still sleeping. But I'm like, you're you're breathing air. But don't we do that? We just grumble about everything. It's not good enough, and I don't like it, and I don't like the weather, and I don't like this. And If you just lived thankful lives, literally, thank you, Jesus, that I woke up alive today. That's a gift. You realize that. Like Colossians says, the universe is held together by the word of Jesus. You breathing in and out is because Jesus is allowing it. But we go, well, I wish I could have a promotion, and blah, blah, blah. And we just grumble and mutter. And Paul says, don't do that. Why? It will shipwreck your faith. Your view of God will change and you'll go, God's out to get me and he's not kind and he's not good enough to me and I, my circumstances are bad and we grumble, grumble, grumble. And, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't spend your life grumbling about things. Verse 11 and 12, he says this. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is trying to counteract this kind of presumptuous faith where it's, where it's like, you know what, I'm fine. I said the prayer 50 years ago in VBS, God's not going to punish me, it's fine. It doesn't matter the decisions I make, God is love, he won't, he won't turn me away. And, and the example is Israel. Israel's presumed knowledge were the chosen people of God, led them to risk idolatrous associations and sexual morality and grumbling, and they thought nothing of it, and hardly any of them made it. So the question then is, uh, is Paul saying that we can't have any type of assurance of faith? And no, that's not what he's saying. I am a firm believer in the perseverance of the saints. The ones whom God calls will make it to the end. Jesus says, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me. He says, they are in my hand and the Father's hand and no one can snatch them out. So Paul's not saying, live your life on eggshells. Am I saved? I'm not saved. Now I'm saved. I'm not saved. Now I'm saved. No. You will persevere to the end. What Paul is attacking is an assurance that has its roots in nonchalance. 
It's not an assurance of faith going, no, God's going to persevere me to the end. It's an assurance that has misplaced confidence in your own knowledge where you're like, yeah, whatever. Of course I'm going to make it. No one, who cares what I do? I think someone who lives like that proves that their heart is hard. Do you actually have faith in Jesus if you live your life like that? Jesus even talks about it. People in, in Matthew 13, the parable of the, the, the soils, the person who seems to shoot up right away, actually they, they die. It looks really good on the outside though. So Paul is saying, don't put your faith in kind of this nonchalant approach and misplaced confidence. Don't shipwreck your faith by, by assuming that you can continue to just sin and live in rebellion. Don't live like that. So what do we do then? Do we just kind of throw our arms up and go, well, it's hopeless. No, of course not. Paul ends by saying this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, here's the conclusion, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So listen, there's, there's always a way out, always. That should give us immense comfort that God says that actually I'm faithful and I won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, unfortunately, this verse has been misused and lots of people say the saying, oh, well, God won't give you more than you can handle which is not, like the entire Bible is God giving people more than they can handle. Because <laughs> the point is, stop trusting in yourself. Trust in Jesus. But what, what Paul does say is God's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability where you throw your hands up and go, there is no option but for me to sin. There's no way out. He says, no, God will always, always, always provide a way out. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's faithful. He'll strengthen you to endure to the end. So listen, when we go through, you know, temptations or we're tempted for idolatry and sexual immorality or grumbling or putting God to the test, we can't say, well, God, it's your fault. No, there's always a way out. But the question is, like, are we actually willing to take the way out? Or do we want to just kind of stay near the borders of sin and flirt around with it and see how close we can get? Like, I knew guys in my youth group, when we would teach on this kind of stuff, it was like, I got to go get a flip phone. And we just laugh, and it's so silly. But they said, you know what? My iPhone is going to destroy me. And I know so many of us go, well, I need it, and I need it for Is God giving you a way out? Or are you just going, oh, we're just making excuses, right? And so I know many teens where flip phones were the thing. I can't get on the internet on this thing. And that's good because I know, like, God's giving me a way out. Uh, I remember there was a time when I preached on something similar to this, and a teen who had been battling with sexual temptation and pornography, he went home and he took his laptop and he found his dad's hammer and he went outside and he smashed his laptop. And then the next day I had two angry parents in my office being like, do you know how much that costs? But I said, you know what? Good on Justin. He went home and he said, I am sick of saying, I have a problem. I can't stop this porn addiction. Let me go on my laptop where it's literally right there. And he said, enough. God's given me a way out. I don't need a laptop. I'm going to smash it. Are you willing to do things like that? 
to endure to the end, to make it, to receive the crown of righteousness. God has not made it impossible for you. So to close, three very quick points of application. How will you and I make it to the end? Number one, we will make it to the end because of God's faithfulness. Look at the middle of verse 13. God is faithful. So listen, no one's going to make it to the end patting themselves on the back. You will make it to the end because God faithfully brought you to the end. Secondly, to make it to the end, you must discipline yourself. You must, you must, you must, you must. I can't say it enough. You must discipline yourself. Right? Train and exercise and show self-control and work to win the race. You must show self-control and discipline yourself. And then thirdly, how will you make it to the end? You have to flee. You have to flee these areas that can shipwreck your faith. Flee from idolatry. Flee from sexual morality. Flee from testing God. Flee from grumbling. Just run away from them. God's given you a way out. Take it. Because I know my, the, the thing that like drives me and hopefully would drive you is that you'll make it to the end and when you stand before Jesus, he'll say, well done. Well done, Andrew, Graham, Dawn, Austin. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is what should motivate us. So, Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the encouragement it is, but also the, just the, the prodding that it is and the conviction that it is in my own life. Um, Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you are the one who is going to help us persevere to the end. It has, it has nothing to do really with us. It has everything to do with you. Jesus, you are going to help us. You are faithful. Uh, but I just pray for my brothers and sisters today, God, and I pray for myself. I know so often my own attitude towards my Christian walk is just very nonchalant. When in reality, uh, your word seems to be stressing that we, we can't treat our faith like that. We, we have to run the race. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to, to show self-control. We have to exercise and, and train and run the race hard. So I pray, God, that you would help us discipline ourselves. We want to finish the race. Um, help us to, to flee from these things that have the potential to just shipwreck us. I pray that we, would, we wouldn't just play around with them or, or flirt with sin, but that we would take drastic measures. Like Paul says, man, I'm going I'm to give myself a black eye in this race. That, that we would do whatever is necessary to remove those temptations that could shipwreck us. And God, we're not, we're not, we're not racing and disciplining ourselves for some dumb wreath made of celery we are racing for a crown of righteousness so help us Jesus help us to persevere to the end and we just praise you for your faithfulness 
And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.